Hello, yes, it's the album years again, and it's our first episode of 2022. Can you believe, Tim, we've been doing this for almost two years? We've talked about a lot of records, haven't we? A lot of records. And um, I think we've been broadly pretty positive about about uh, what we've talked about, and I hope sort of people feel our enthusiasm for the music we talk about. But, but perhaps we should open things up, because we haven't done this for a while. Let's have... Readers' letters, Tim. Come on, you must have been monitoring the social media. <laughs> I've actually got no readers' letters for you today. None. I thought you. I thought you spend all your day on social media, checking what people are saying about you. No, I. I. I, I don't even deign to look at it. So you've got no idea what people thought about our Christmas special, for example. Um, okay, I do. Yeah, obviously. Ah, uh, okay. That seems to go down. Pretty well. They actually like the guest as well, Paul Sinclair. They thought he was uh, a good addition. Paul was great. Addition. Yeah, yeah. Good. Okay. Well, well great. Well, so, so we continue to talk about the idea of the album. The, the the podcast is called The Album Years. We, You know, as I think we sort of laid out from the very beginning of the podcast, we are focusing on the era that we, we believe is the golden era for the album intended to be listened to from beginning to end. And, I mean, could this be the greatest year of all in terms of the amount of – albums we're looking at this on this list and saying oh my god i love that record oh my god that's a masterpiece because it seems to me i say this every episode with a few exceptions but this one is really amazing and we're talking about 1978 here so we're talking about the immediate kind of aftermath we're kind of in in the sort of slipstream of punk and the way that it's kind of shaken up the world of music but not only punk also disco music disco music and punk music really being the two big sort of innovations in popular music mainstream music and how they've shaken up almost everything and you can see i think almost all of the records on this list you can see the impact of either or both of those two things can't you yeah i was gonna say you know the industry to a certain extent as well was becoming more aware of its commercial impact and artists that if you like had ridden the 60s and 70s on a wave of idealism were suddenly having to think about what they were producing because i was interested that and we'll talk about it later but a couple of the artists we deal with they're actually discussing the industry and the industry pressures that they're facing that they wouldn't have had to maybe a few years earlier and one of the things I was going to say about this year, it's difficult to say whether it's, it's the greatest year or not, because we say 1986 almost seemed to be the greatest year. And I'm sure that we're going to find many other years that are equally brilliant. And some years will produce albums of greater value while overall not being particularly interesting. But this mm. was an overall interesting year. And for me, it's kind of um, important because it was one of the first years where I was really buying records me too. for the first time. Me too. And yeah. I remember the emotional impact and I remember going into the stores, buying them. And although this is the album years, the one thing I've got to say is that this was a spectacular year for singles. That There was a compilation mm. recently, I think it was Now That's What I Call Punk and New Wave, which doesn't sound promising, but it was a brilliantly compiled effort that mainly took singles from 77 to 81. And I realised that I had bought two thirds of the tracks on that so as much as actually really succumbing to the power of the album i bought a tremendous number of singles and there were a lot of bands who just produced brilliant one-offs you know it was almost like the 60s in that sense of, of artists who were riding creative waves producing their best work and that best work might have been an ep or a single rather than an album so you know quite a lot was out there 
Yeah, and I think interesting because I, I was just at the point, I mean, I was 10 years old when 1978 turned around and I was just beginning to buy records, but I couldn't afford to buy albums. So I was primarily getting into music and getting into this idea of owning music by buying, as you say, singles. So I remember buying not Black and White by The Stranglers, but I bought <laughs> Nice and Sleazy, the sing the single yeah. from, from Black and White. I remember buying Follow You, Follow Me from from the Genesis album this year, but but never owned the album, you know. So um, so you're right. I think this was a, this probably for us at this point in our lives, this was more about singles than it was about the albums. But anyway, let's move on. So you've made this list as, as normal. You've kind of you've shot the first volley across the bow and you've sent me your list, which I've kind of edited and reconfigured slightly. And we're going to start off with a controversial one. And and um, I I have to say I don't really believe in this notion. I'm not sure you do either, but you've put it rather provocatively you put these albums under the heading of guilty pleasures or or indefensibles <laughs> um now i i have to say i really dislike this notion i don't think you should ever feel guilty for anything you like um and i think we should be way past the point certainly in our age tim we should be way past the point where we are embarrassed to like something but i understand what you're saying here you're kind of saying that these are records that were never hip to admit that you liked yeah. and potentially still aren't. So City to City by Jerry Rafferty. Um, I guess he was never cool, Jerry Rafferty, was he? he? He was kind of this rather bearded, bespectacled guy that looked like he was middle-aged, even when he was probably in his mid-twenties. Yes. Um, but, I mean, Baker Street, surely one of the greatest pop singles of uh, all time. Well, an astonishing single. I mean, beautifully produced, really ambitious, sweeping lyric. And number one for God knows how many weeks. And, and yeah, it was one of the many singles I bought this year. And as, as you pointed out, you know, um, buying The Stranglers and buying Genesis, it was one of those periods that before you read the music papers, you're just struck by the music. You're not struck by any fashionable desire to buy the music. Um, and I was going to say one of the weird things about this period is... Um, how much I kind of discovered from television, how eclectic music was on television, and even, of course, the great Top of the Pops. So, you know, when I bought Stranglers, No More Heroes and Baker Street, I bought them primarily because I'd seen them on Top of the Pops. And that was an interesting thing that this was was kind of not exactly a taste maker or taste shaper, but it introduced you to all sorts of music because it was such a melting pot that era wasn't it of um of mor prog rock disco new wave you name it yeah and i think and and singer i mean jerry rafferty obviously i guess you'd you'd ultimately describe him as a classic singer songwriter you know he came from that tradition and uh this is just an album that's almost i mean i do have the record now and i never had it at the time but in recent years i have bought the record and and listen to the whole record it's just an album that is almost impossible to dislike you know it, it kind of falls into that same category of albums like rumors you know mm. and dark side of the moon it's almost impossible to dislike such a beautifully produced beautifully performed beautifully crafted set of quite uncool sounding songs but you just you know you get to the point where you just think i don't care you know abba of course being the, the mm. quintessential band that you would kind of put into that category it's impossible to dislike it's not cool it's never going to be cool but it doesn't matter because it just it brings you so much pleasure and enjoyment and i suppose a lot of the records in this category like you have here now this is an interesting one because i think this album is an absolute masterpiece i've always thought it was a masterpiece and it's 
kind of illustrating in a way what I was talking about, how the influence of disco and, and punk are having an influence on almost every corner of the music business. Jeff Wayne's musical version of The War of the Worlds, this is essentially a conceptual progressive rock album that uses disco as its kind of rhythmic base. Yeah. Um, so it, it it's kind of very rooted in that era, in that sounds like it could almost be played alongside Earth, Wind and Fire and Donna Summer records, because it has this kind of funky disco rhythmic element, which it wouldn't have had if it had been made two, three, four, five years earlier. So it's very much reflecting the time it's in. But essentially, it has the conceit of being a old-fashioned, in the best possible sense of the word, conceptual rock album. I, I just think this album is genius. I never get tired of it. So, I mean, what's your take on this album, Tim? You put it in the guilty pleasures. I kind of understand why, because it was never a hip record. You wouldn't, you wouldn't get the kids who were listening to the Stranglers and and you know specials admitting they were listening to Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. But that is apart from us, because obviously I was listening to the Stranglers, the specials, and this. Um, yeah, I mean, it was one of those albums that I did buy at the time. Loved the package. I loved the scope of it. Um, I'm also a big fan of the H.G. Wells novel, which I, I recommend people read. Um, and probably once more, it's a top of the pops discovery because it would have been the single forever autumn that would have attracted me to the album. Um, and it's one of those that you were talking about your Peter Hamill story of, you know, uh, Nadia's big chance being associated with pink gloop that tasted vile. And um, I always have a, an utterly bizarre memory associated with this because um, it was a very turbulent period for me personally, which is why I have quite an attachment to some of these records, because music really was an escape from a pretty horrible adolescence. And um, my biggest memory of War of the Worlds was that my grandmother was having a nervous breakdown while my my grandfather was having a heart attack in the house next door and dying. And I had to keep my grandmother entertained while waiting for ambulance. And the only thing I could think of was to play her War of the Worlds because she loved Richard Burton. Yeah, so, well, I was going to say, I bet it's the Richard Burton factor, yeah. And it was in what between. What a voice, yeah. yeah. Well, it was, and th- but this was it. So in between wild exclamations from a woman having a nervous breakdown, she'd go, oh, Lovely voice, Richard Burton. What a voice! Well, and it, and it, yeah, and I understand that. No, and, and it is, it's, it's that Proustian thing where you hear a piece of music and it takes you back to a very specific moment in time. And sometimes those moments in time are, you know, they're kind of bad memories in a way, or bad things are happening. But the music is kind of the soundtrack in your, in your kind of memory playback of that time in your life, isn't it? So I get, I get that totally. I mean, I just, I remember listening to Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds with my first ever proper girlfriend, uh, probably at the age of like 12 or 13, you know, just sort of both sort of on our on our fronts, reading the booklet as we listened to it and just kind of in awe. Of the, and of course, I, did, I hadn't read the book, so this, the ending was a surprise to me. You know, it's like uh, the first time I heard it. Oh, my God. Um, the bacteria killed the Martians. Sorry, that's not a spoiler, folks. Everyone knows that, surely. right? Um, and it is kind of unique in the world of progressive rock in that it does have this disco, funky disco beat on a lot of the songs. And I can't think of anything quite quite like it in that respect i was gonna say alan parsons project had that to an extent didn't they because their album oh, this yes, year pyramid yeah. they also great album sort of yeah. blended disco and funk with a floyd textural 
aspect. Um, and it's interesting because, because again, I, I was, you know, like you, huge fan of sort of uh, Donna Summer's disco albums at the time and a huge fan of Pink Floyd. So an album like War of the Worlds made complete sense to me. And yeah. there were some beautiful melodies. You know, the, the interesting thing about these two albums we've discussed, the Rafferty and the Wayne, is that they've both got these immaculate smooth productions that I also associate with Parsons' work with Al Stewart. And Al Stewart had Town Passengers released this year, which was it was another strong follow-up. That was to his Year of the Cat success. But um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it, it moves very beautifully. It, it, it's an album that's clearly had an awful lot of thought behind oh, it. Oh, unbelievable. Years of planning. Years of planning. I mean, you can hear that, you know. A ditto, I think, this other record you have on the list here, Andrew Lloyd Webber's Variations. This is this is basically another wolf in sheep's clothing, isn't it? This is a jazz fusion record yeah. made by uh, a bunch of jazzers and progressive rock musicians. But if you listen to it, I mean, everyone kind of knows, at least everyone in the UK knows Variations 1 to 4 because it was the theme for many years to the South Bank show, a very famous TV show. But that's only the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? The more you listen to this record, the more you realise it's very, very, very much immersed in that world of fusion. And again, progressive rock, isn't it? Um, And for that to be coming out in 1978 and being such a big crossover chart success is very much what people forget about this era isn't it they think that they think that it was very much a case of the new sweeping away the old and as we see with these records on this list very much the opposite was the truth that some of the biggest records of the era were the the quote-unquote old-fashioned records yeah well i mean it wasn't only an album like this i mean think of bands like renaissance and lindisfarne had their biggest hits in 78 as well um i mean this was another album i discovered through tv really because i I was an avid south bank show watcher and there was a a documentary about it in fact they did a couple of well several music documentaries over the years they did one on talking heads a couple of years after this which was amazing uh yeah well of course smith's um I think this year they did the documentary on Variations and they also did a documentary on Daryl Way, who had Concerto for Electric Violin. And um, it was giving a lot of exposure to this music. And I guess that what it was was that an older demographic was maybe buying it, that, you know, we might have been the kids who would have bought the Variations. But I think that it would have also been our parents, because I remember with Variations, I think that was in our house because my dad bought it. I guess there are still equivalents to that. You know, these days you might have albums like, you know, Ibiza songs done by the London Symphony Orchestra, you know, albums that attempt to try and straddle that world, you know, of of sort of hip electronic music and a more kind of, you know, uh, middle aged aesthetic for for want of a better expression. But this this was definitely I think this album is a big success, you know, artistic success as well as commercial success. I, I, I love it. I think it still stands the test of time. We're going to move on to two others now. Now, it's interesting that, again, uh, we touched on the fact that the myth, of course, about the late 70s is that punk rock did away with the old guard. And, and as we've said many times, nothing could be further from the truth. But it's certainly true to say that a lot of the original wave of quote unquote progressive rock groups were going through some kind of to put it kindly, transitional phase, to put it unkindly, identity crisis. And in your guilty pleasures, you have a couple of records that I think fall into the latter category. 
One of these I really, really like, which is the Yes album from this year, Tomato. I'm a, I'm a big apologist for this record. I don't understand, and I know you feel the same. I don't understand why it gets a bad rap. I think it's a very, uh, it's it's a mad record. Uh, you almost have to you almost have to just go with it. It's it's kind of insanity in a way because it's so off with the fairies. Uh, as so often anything with John Anderson involved is in the best possible sense of the word but here tracks like Arriving UFO and Circus of Heaven you really have to you, re- you, re- you really have to go with him don't you and I lo- you know I love it in my, and if I allow myself to do that I absolutely love it but you know they're also just fantastic tracks like Future Times uh, On the Silent Wings of Freedom I think as good as any yeah well Onward as good as any of their ballads you know um it was another thing, isn't it? Because I'm mean, going for the one I think was was yes, firing in all cylinders. You know, for me, it's their equal best album along with Close to the Edge, and oblivious to all the prevailing trends. You know, they were making Awaken. There's absolutely no sense of 1977 going on around that band, and and I think it's all the better for it. With Tomato, you're right. Suddenly they've got this identity crisis you can hear on certain pieces don't kill the whale has got a kind of a funk disco groove uh, release release has got an attempt at punk energy um but it's still absolutely mad i mean for me it's an interesting year 78 because it's a year of beginnings and endings you know beginnings because there are so many artists on their debut albums making stunning statements that are going to define the next 20 years and endings because for me it's when a lot of bands maybe made their last good albums that had a sense of themselves in it so for me with yes although i think they did go on to make some great music even in the 80s you know i think the the two trevor's albums both of them big generator 90125 have got some amazing stuff and they convincingly reinvented themselves as a brilliant hard rock band for the 80s but for me tomato is the last album by yes that I love. Yes, yeah, I, I think, couldn't. I couldn't disagree more. I think Drama for me is one of the top three Yes albums, the following record. Anyway, but you, <laughs> this is your opinion. You carry on. Just yeah. making that point. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I well, you know, it's, I always felt Drama was very good, but but an attempt to recreate the magic. It seemed staged to me, whereas I think Tomato doesn't seem staged in any way. It seems confused, but it's it's everywhere all at once you know it's with the fairies it's attempting to be punk it's attempting to be disco it's attempting to be epic and what you've got is five players who are still at the peak of their abilities playing as a band so for me it's the last time yes sound like a band whereas you know you listen to 90125 and it's clearly dictated by the production process and the input of the two trevors you listen to drama and to me it seems like albeit a brilliantly executed one, a self-conscious exercise in making a Yes album. This is five people in the studio making magic accidentally. And that's what I think Yes always did best. Okay, I'm not sure I really understand your distinction there totally. I mean, I could say Tomato, you know, and I like the record very much, but it sounds far more contrived to me than drama, which is kind of the opposite of what you're saying. But anyway, um, (laughs) let's move. Let's move on to we like we like Tomato. Yes, very underrated album in their catalogue, I think. Let's move on to another album uh, from a band from a similar similar kind of background, also associated with the progressive rock genre. (laughs) Uh, Love Beach, Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Defend it, Tim. Defending the indefensible. Well, look, I've always felt with Love Beach. Number one, it's a stronger, more coherent album than Works and Works Volume 2. Works Volume 2, which was just a collection of singles, B-sides, outtakes, anyway. 
if you gave it a different cover, maybe put an armored armadillo on the cover. If you started with memoirs of an officer and a gentleman, I think people would have a completely different view of it. I think this album, well, I think it's 90% viewed through the cover, which, of course, if, for those who don't know, it, it is one of the worst covers of all time, where a band associated with mystery, mystique, and a certain level of quality, uh, they're on a beach with palm trees behind them, bearing their hairy chests and medallions. It's it's like a comedy pastiche of um, a Bee Gees cover, of what people think Bee Gees covers are. But the album sure. itself features... A 20-minute epic with music by Emerson and lyrics by Sinfield, which I think has some of their sweetest melodies. It sounds a little undercooked, underproduced, but it's actually quite a reasonable story. It's beautifully sung, because I think Lake still has his voice at this stage. The other side has one Emerson instrumental, Canario, which is okay, if you like that type of Emerson instrumental, and six relatively bland lake attempts at pop ballads so i'm not really going to defend that side i just think it's not as bad as people say and i suppose i've always defended it because while i hardly think it is a pinnacle of artistic achievement nor do i think it's the nadir that it's often discussed as being the cover is awful you're right but then the cover to tarkas is fucking awful too <laughs> now it's interesting because i was going to mention this about the yes tomato album as well do you think that album would be better regarded if it didn't have a terrible cover it has one of the few bad hypnosis covers uh, of yeah. the 70s it's, it's a it's a concept that probably sounded good in print which just doesn't work so is it is it is it perhaps that sometimes the covers distort our, our impressions of I was going to say, on one level, I think you're entirely right with this medium, but on another level, not. Because we said before, we were talking with Paul about covers and Blue Nile, you know, one of my favourite bands of all time. I, th- I think, bar one cover, universally dreadful sleeve images, but it doesn't dictate yes, doesn't my yeah, love yeah. of the music. But you are right. What I think these two covers have, which maybe the Blue Nile don't, I don't like the Blue Nile covers, but what they're not is slapdash. And if you look at Tomato, you look at Love Beach, they're really slapdash. It's as if the band do not give a shit. They do not care about this. And even that squashed tomato on the back, it's almost like their comment on the music. And Love Beach almost seems to be mocking the audience. Well, I think that's the difference, isn't it? The Blue Nile covers may be dull, but they're not laughable. Yeah, the, these these covers are laughable, and and when you when you combine that with the fact that the the knives were out for these kind of bands at this tier, this period in time, certainly in terms of the British uh, music press, the knives were out. When you put a cover like that on your album, you're basically just asking to be, you know, you're putting a target on your backside, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're asking to be punched. But somehow, <laughs> when I listened to the music, pretty much for the first time ever in my life. The music kind of seemed to go with the cover. I couldn't divorce the two in my mind yeah. uh, because the music was not surprising me with how good it was. Quite the opposite. I suppose I still maintain that if you'd have put an H.R. Geiger cover on that and you'd have started with the epic, though it would not be regarded as one of the best, it wouldn't be regarded as the disaster. What I'm, what I'm saying to an extent, it's the period it was released in. It's the slapdash mocking cover that to an extent dictate our response to that album. That the, They're factors outside the music. Because one of the things I was going to say about this year is partly I question my taste more in this year than any other, maybe because I was young when I discovered a lot of this music and 
less formed. And so it emotionally impacted on me in a way that it couldn't six or seven years later. I don't know. It's almost like the year that taste forgot in some respects. And, and I and I question my liking of certain things. So you may be right that, you know, partly because I'd have heard it at a certain time, I'm more forgiving of it than I would be ordinarily. But also, you know, sometimes it's fun to defend albums that people think are the utter <laughs> nadir of Western nadir, civilization. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, and, and that's partly what the show is, is about, you know, and you and I will both defend albums to each other where the other will play devil's advocate. Um, and this is definitely the case with, with the Emerson Lake and Palmer. I, I, th- I thought it was um, shit. Okay, so talking of covers, and we talked about the Hypnosis cover to Tomato being one of one of their few misfires. They also this year created one of one of I think one of the greatest covers of all time. And we're going to move now on to the the category, the nonstop rise of the new wave, and how many amazing bands came out of that crucible of punk? How many amazing bands were given license and given record deals and given a a stage? Um, to, I don't mean literally, I mean in terms of having a profile to be able to bring their music to a big audience because of the change, the changing winds and the changing tides and the way that record companies changed the way they thought about music and who they should sign and who they should champion and who should they put, put their money into. So they were putting a lot of money into these sort of so-called punk bands and some amazing bands that obviously had very little to do with punk got signed off the back of that. They kind of used it mm. as a springboard. So bands like Japan, Squeeze, Stranglers, Magazine, Wire, and XTC. Now, XTC, one of my favourite bands of all time, I know the same for you too, produced both their debut and their second record this year, an extraordinary creative period of time for them, both amazing records. But again, coming back to the hypnosis sleeve, Go To, I think, has one of the great record sleeves mm-hmm. of all time and it, it's a sleeve that i kind of a little bit parodied in my future bites campaign it's almost using this idea that you're reminding the listener you're reminding the purchaser that the purchaser that they are engaged in an act of commerce so for those of you who don't know it first you should go and look at the sleeve um, it is very unusual for a hypnosis storm with augustine sleeve it's c- completely text-based and it basically starts off by reminding you that you are buying a product and the text just goes on to tell you that you're being manipulated, you're being marketed to, etc. Et it's a wonderfully kind of fresh idea. One that's also echoed, I think, in the Public Image album. For I was this about year. to say, yeah, Public Image yeah. do the same. And we, they did it with album to an extent as well, didn't they, in 86? And also with Metal Box to an extent, putting an album in a metal can. Yeah, yeah, in a tin can. So there's, a, I think there's a lot of this kind of way of thinking going on with the, with the so-called punk or post-punk groups. But let's talk about the music. One of the things I love about XTC, one of the many things I love about XTC is Every single album in the catalogue has its own completely unique personality uh, and something I've aspired to in my own career too, and I know you have too with your solo career. White music can go to, in a sense, are the exceptions to the rule, and they do seem like two sides of the same coin, don't they? But they have that kind of fusion of power pop, glam. Um, it's, it seems to also have a lot in common with what's going in, on in New York with the talking heads. It's a sort of quirky angular sort of edge to it i'm a big fan of this record these records and i I get very frustrated when i see hear people talk about xtc and say oh yeah well you know from drums and wires i was a big fan i kind of discount everything they did before that because i think white music in its own way particularly is one of the great debut albums of, of all time i mean what fantastic pop songs what what a great sense of energy and playfulness and creativity 
just sort of tearing out of the speakers at you right from the beginning of Radios in Motion. What, what's your take on these albums? Yeah, too? I mean, another band that I discovered through TV. I mean, this is this was Magpie this time because Magpie used to do little features oh, yeah. on music, and um, they did one feature which I was a big fan of 10CC anyway. But they had a huge feature on Godly and Cream making consequences and the nature of the Gizmotron, which was rather nice, uh, you know, for for a 12, 13 year old to, to watch on TV. And with XTC, they played uh, This Is Pop. And I think they might have had a discussion with the band afterwards. I'm not sure. But I was hooked on that. I thought it was a brilliant single. And, um, yeah, I, I really like these first two albums. I guess you could call them the Barry Andrews years, really, because they're the two albums yes. that Barry made with the band. And they've got a real excitement. What I think links them to the New York scene, because I suspect that at that time they hadn't heard Talking Heads or Perubu or Patti Smith or television. Um, I suspect they were just coming from their own collections. And I think what it is that there's a kind of there's a an energy buzz that sort of reminds me of Beatles era mid 60s singles. But then there's a dissonance that reminds me of Captain Beefheart. And they have this old school rock and roll element that's provided by Barry Andrews organ. Mm. And so it's this wild fusion of elements that makes for this very original energetic sound and i think it's almost kind of accidental that it somehow reverberates also in the music of talking heads i think it's probably people coming from entirely different backgrounds but maybe with similar influences because the one thing that the the american bands did have was a real sense of rock and roll culture so you can hear in patty smith and television sometimes talking heads um early funk early rock and roll um early beatles even and certainly the birds you know um were an influence on on patty smith group um and maybe it's that that the, the xtc also had that respect for and knowledge of 60s pop music that somehow is filtered through this late 1970s post-punk sound but I think I think that's interesting because in the American bands you can hear you can definitely hear stuff like Velvet Underground and The Doors, and in the English groups you can hear things like Roxy Music and David Bowie. Yeah, I think that's a very broad simplification, but I do think I don't hear a lot of influence of things like you know The Doors or The Velvet Underground on on no, Squeeze no. or XTC or or Magazine, but I do hear a lot of Roxy, the first four Roxy albums, the the Bowie, the, perhaps the Berlin the Berlin albums, which were still very fresh at this time, but also going back to things like Ziggy and also glam rock, T Rex, you know, yeah. um, the Sweet Slade, it's all in here. That kind of love of big stomping but slightly quirky guitar pop music. But Andy's de- vocal delivery, of course, is something that perhaps you would say wouldn't have been like that if it hadn't been for punk coming along and kind of yeah. pushing him in that direction. It's that very kind of arch, angular, cynical, sort of snidey, sneering edge to the vocal delivery that punk has kind of given a lot of these bands. Yeah, the barking seal or something. The barking it, yeah. seal. But it's interesting mm. because if you take that away from some of these bands, there's really very little left that you could even say is punk in conception, isn't it? It's usually the vocal delivery that makes it, and maybe sometimes the guitar, the attack of the guitar. So let's, I mean, let's talk about magazine. I mean, they're they're kind of the quintessential. Is it prog? Is it punk group? Aren't they? 
Mm. And this album is full of epics as well, isn't it? Their debut. I mean, yeah. what I love about the magazine debut is that they just hit the ground running. They are themselves straight away. It's unashamedly ambitious. And yes, you can hear certain aspects of Bowie's Berlin experiments and definitely aspects of early Roxy. But there's a kind of grandeur that is more Floydian than it is punk and and i think they're one of the great bands actually one of the things i really like about my magazine is that they're one of the bands where every single musician makes a mark and you can recognize them fantastic players and distinctive players and it's a band working together um whereas you know a lot of bands and, and xtc you could argue with that as well <laughs> Also, I think interesting you've pointed out that this is a year of great debuts, great debut records. So so we do have White Music by XTC. We do have uh, uh, Real Life by Magazine. Uh, we do have uh, Outlandos de Moor by The Police. Let, I mean, let's talk about that record. I mean, what a, what a band and, and what, a, what a debut record. I think still possibly my favourite Police record, the first two records, actually. But Outlandos de Moor, I mean... And again, what an, a really, really unique hybrid. And interesting, you talk about bands where everyone was instantly recognisable. Here's a band, here's a, a three-piece band where, I think we talked about the police before in one of the episodes and we yeah. mentioned this, didn't we? How instantly you would recognise Stuart Copeland on drums. Instantly you would recognise Andy Summers on guitar. And instantly you would recognise Sting, not only as a songwriter, but as a bass player and a singer. And straight away, straight out of the gates that's here that's all here on the opening track on it next to you um but also classic songs you know Roxanne is a real evergreen it's almost a standard now isn't it mm-hmm. uh, Roxanne to think this was on the debut record a record I think they cut in like two or three days yeah I was going to say with a lot of these bands though they'd had prehistory they were lucky so you know you think of magazine and you think of the police certainly they'd had experience previously and many of them were actually older than the prog rock bands um, you know, somebody like Dave Formula, the keyboard player of Magazine, he'd been in a band signed in the mid 60s to Decca. Well, Andy, Andy Summers, yeah. Yeah, Andy Summers, of course, worked with Kevin Coyne. He'd worked actually with Soft Machine on tour. Um, Sting had been in a jazz rock band. And of course, Stuart Copeland was in Curved Air for a while as the drummer. So these people were experienced musicians. And I think this is it, isn't it? Sometimes originality can come when you're fusing your, your root influences and your root experiences with what's happening in the here and now and they're giving something absolutely fresh to it and i suppose in the case of police xdc and magazine they're all very musical bands they're great songwriters and they're great musicians but they're blending all of their influences with the energy and the chaos of those changing times of the late 70s. Very much so, yeah. And again, so you, you mentioned the fact that people like Sting and Andy Summers and Dave Formula have been around for years. Again, they're kind of latching on to punk as a way to, to get themselves a foothold mm. in the industry. And of course, these bands very, very quickly kind of kind of discarded the vestiges of punk and post-punk. Sort of, certainly XTC within you know, four or five records had become almost like this post-Beatles singer-songwriter ensemble, you know. So that's, a, again, a very gr- a gross sim- uh, simplification. But there was very little left from what you would say punk, post-punk, or certainly very little left from what you hear on albums like White Music and Go To. And the same would be true of a band like Squeeze. Now, 
The first Squeeze album, I think, is a bit of a misfire. I don't think it's a great... Unlike White yeah. Music or Real Life or Atlantis, I don't think they come out the gate with a classic record. It's not a good start. But it's interesting, again, that this is a band that you'd have to say, secretly, they probably had very little interest in punk. Yeah. But they're kind of using it. They're kind of using it because they, it's giving them a record deal. Um, they're going to get records out because this is this is the way of things at this time. Young bands with aggressive guitars and sneery vocals, they get record deals. They get on top of the pops. So here's a band. And actually, I think the interesting, the, the one thing I don't like about the first Squeeze album is the production by John Cale. It just misses the mark. Well, I think they said that he was just sort of barely there in a lot of his productions during that period. And I'm pretty sure I read somewhere where... Um, the squeeze guy said that they played whole lot of love to him just as a joke that's kind of you know this is our new song and Kale's going yeah 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 great okay let's get this, the, the tape on he just okay. wasn't listening to what they were doing and so they played some kind of hoary old rock piece and they were sort of testing his awareness throughout this so yeah I think it does sound a bit of a mess but I think Take Me I'm Yours is a brilliant single I was going to say that's the one caveat to this is there's one track on the album that John Kell did not produce which was produced by the band themselves which was the the one outstanding track on the album which was the hit single Take Me I'm Yours and I, I, and I do remember buying that on 7 Inch and, and loving it and then being disappointed with the record you know well what's yeah. interesting about that single is that you know we were talking about influences because it's actually got quite a weird almost electro pop pulse running through mm. it as well as quite sophisticated solos in eastern scales it's a really interesting piece of work actually and I, it reminds me a little bit of, of a band who unfortunately kind of died uh, with their one big single, Airport, by the Motors. You know, that was their oh, one single, yeah. which is a wonderful, wonderful single. But luckily with Squeeze, I think Take Me, I'm Yours became the template for the second album, which was great, you know, much, much better. And I think, you know, really by the late 70s, early 80s, they were a stunning single band, but they were also producing pretty decent albums. And, and they were more in tune with their influences. You know, obviously they'd come up through the school of Lennon and McCartney and the changes that the Beatles had made and they'd applied that to the late 70s, early 80s. And I think, you know, I think very underrated band. Absolutely. And, you know, and again, I, I do make the point that I think they're an amazing band, but this album probably was not the most auspicious start for them. But thankfully, they did have that one hit single off it, which I guess gave them the sort of confidence to go forward or the record company to go forward and allow them to make further records. And now they're a legendary band, deservedly so. So let's have a look at some of the other bands, some of the other albums that came out this year that would fall into the, the non-stop rise of the new wave category. Two albums from Buzzcocks, uh, another music in a different kitchen Love Bites. Uh, Elvis Costello and the Tractions this year's model. Is this also a debut record? I think it is the debut, isn't it? No, he did one. No, My Aim is True is the debut. Yeah, yeah, My Aim is True, beg your pardon. Again, two albums by Japan, one of our favourites. So get your drinks ready, guys. Here comes the first mention of David Sylvian. Would you say, this is an interesting one, isn't it? Because Japan are an anomaly here in a way because... You could say they were a little bit slow out of the gate because clearly their classic work was to come. But, the, but yeah. their early records kind of exist in their own world anyway, a bit like the XTC records in that sense. I'm a big fan of particularly of Obscure Alternatives, the second the second album from this year. I think they had something really strange and, and, and you know, int- important to also note that it was deeply unfashionable at the time what Japan were doing. They were kind of almost ridiculed by the British music press because they didn't really fit in with the back to basics punk aesthetic. In fact, they they went for the very glammy uh, makeup, big hair, um, and it was more clearly indebted to the the 
I guess where the influence of Roxy and Bowie was more sort of um, deep seated in things like XTC, it was very obvious in Japan, wasn't it? And they they kind of got a little bit of the piss taken out of them for that reason, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, they also had a bit of the New York dolls in the image and also the sound. Right. The first two albums are much more raw than what is to follow. I mean, the one thing I, I do, like you, I think Obscure Alternatives has got some great stuff on it, plus a couple of tracks that really hint at Quiet Life. But the one thing that is interesting is that Quiet Life, which obviously has a much stronger Bowie and Roxy influence, but from the more sophisticated Berlin trilogy end, if you like, it came as a complete surprise. I mean, Quiet Life is such a sophisticated work. It's and and Sylvian's vocal is so different. It could be by a different band. You know, from from album two to album three, they have transformed themselves. And of course, by Tin Drum, Tin Drum is nothing like Quiet Life. So one of the things that's interesting is that in a short career with five studio albums, they become three very different entities and um obscure alternatives i think is a good album first album's got some great stuff as well there's a real energy i'm not as much of a fan of the vocal style on the album and and clearly it's kind of quite rough compared to what came but it's still very good very imaginative the 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 seeds of something special are there they're definitely not um albums i dismiss they're they're clearly proper musicians aren't they in inverted commas right from the beginning you can hear there's something different going on uh they're very unique personalities i mean again we talked about the police being one of those groups where everyone is instantly recognizable within within the context of of the group and i think the same is true of japan if not on the first album second certainly by the second album mick khan steve jansen richard of course all instantly recognizable perhaps less so the guitar player but um yeah, I mean, I think a, a band, as you say, it's it's almost hard to imagine anyone being able to like everything in the catalogue. S- so different are the records. And we consider ourselves the outliers in that sense. We do like, at least I like everything XTC did. I like everything Japan did. And it's interesting because a lot of the albums on this list, or a lot of the bands on this list I'm looking at, I'm thinking the same is true, broadly true. If I think about uh, a band like Ultravox, how much they changed. If I think about a band like Wire how much they changed within you know incredibly short periods of time i mean we always kind of cite the beatles as being the kind of poster child for this idea of a band developing i mean we forget sometimes the beatles entire career with all of the changes in direction all of the evolutions all of the developments took place in the time it makes adele to make a follow-up album you know to to her previous billion selling record Uh, sorry to pick on adele she's not the only example you know there are many examples these days of bands taking seven eight nine ten years to make a follow-up record porcupine tree here we go again and and yet this is uh, the period of time that the entire trajectory of the beatles career played out and it's not unusual to see some of these bands on this list here. Uh, the Clash. I mean, The Clash went from sort of very sort of almost generic punk, almost setting the template for what people think about politically charged angsty punk to making ska and reggae music three or four albums later. It, it's something I know you and I have always loved about artists is that constant sense of almost impatience to get on to the next thing. Of course, Bowie, again, another another great exponent of well, that Well, I mean, phenomenon. one who isn't often seen as this, Elvis Costello. I mean, he has gone through astonishing yeah. shifts in his career. And you mentioned the jam. I mean, think about Paul Weller, because obviously within a few years, he's doing the Style Council, you know, a kind of a pop soul uh, confection. After that, he's in sort of folk, the Wildwood territory, that kind of witch season folk influence. But what's important, I think, with all of these artists 
XTC, Japan, Elvis Costello, Weller, is that they remained true to themselves, I think, emotionally and true to their tastes. Because, of course, you know, it wouldn't be that interesting if a band went from wild disco to wild metal without a sense of creativity and cohesion. And I think this is the thing that the artists brought to it. You know, when Costello works with Bacharach, it is as visionary intense and has a certain similarity to his work on imperial bedroom yeah you're absolutely right I, I'm, I'm not so familiar with all of the, the various corners of elvis costello's catalog but he's always fascinated me i'm always sort of interested to see what he's going to do next i remember about this time or was it a couple of years later he came out and did a country record didn't he yeah yeah Am I th- um, yeah almost blue almost blue that's it and i remember seeing the single on i mean this is on top of the pops in 1980 nobody nobody in the mainstream certainly nobody from the sort of so-called post-punk scene was making country music in 90s. I mean, it's very trendy nowadays to sort of incorporate country elements into your sound, isn't it? It certainly wasn't then. And I, and I remember sort of sort of making a mental note. This is a really, really interesting maverick sort of musician and songwriter. So, yeah, absolutely. Props to him for that. So just quickly go through some of the other records that came out this year. Black and White Strangers. I love this record. This was their third record. They were kind of almost old hands by this time, the Strangers. Incredibly pro- prolific work rate. They'd already, already produced... Ratis Norvegicus and and No More Heroes the previous year. So on to the third album, and uh, for me, this is uh, possibly their their greatest record, Black and White. Uh, I love this record. Fantastic fantastic cover as well. The cover's just... Yeah, oh, that's a brilliant cover. Yeah, that's an example of something. Again, I mean, it's so harsh, but what's interesting is, again, if you think of the XTC and you think of the Stranglers covers, they perfectly encapsulate the mood yes. of the music as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I'd agree. I think this is one of the most imaginative albums. It's during, you know, their imperial phase. And I think Raven and, you know, I've also got a soft spot for Men in Black. I've got Men in say. Black, yeah, love it. Uh, yeah, me too. Really good album. So, um, yeah, gr- great album. And although it's more focused musically, it, it's pretty diverse in terms of its use of texture uh, and, and very dark album as well, isn't it? Yeah, very. I, I love it. Yeah. Some of the other artists we haven't mentioned in this category, uh, Susan the Banshees produced another debut, another day. De- Again, a completely unique sound right there from the beginning. You can tell they're going to sound like no one else. They do sound like no one else right from that first record. Um, X-Ray Specs, Germ Free Adolescence, Tubeway Army's first album. Again, greater music would follow the, the following year with Gary Newman. Let's move now over to the other side of the pond and the American new wave bands and there's a very very different sound going on with the american bands but the one that definitely crossed over both in the uk and the us was blondie and parallel lines which um is this i mean this is so far away i mean new wave is this new wave it's just pop isn't it i mean i love it i love it but it's it's great pop yeah and it's got 60s influences it's got disco influences it does have new wave influences you can see i think what it is was that this music was a reaction to prevailing trends i mean as we said those prevailing trends were still going on with war of the worlds and variation you know epic concepts were still selling by the million but this was um short sharp shock music that was perhaps a reaction to what was clogging up the fm airwaves and i guess that's the similarity isn't it between um some of the 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 new wave bands that you know perhaps there's a there's a renewed love 
of the pop singles. We said it was a great year for singles and Blondie were one of the best singles bands there were during this time. But there's enough depth there. You know, of course, Robert Fripp, Drinking Game Special, he oh, guessed on this in. album. Yeah. yeah. So the album has slightly more depth. I mean, the one thing I love about the American artists, you know, television, Patti Smith, Talking Heads, is that they were seemingly more worldly in a way. They seem to know more. They seem to have experienced more. And again, in a lot of cases, um, they were older musicians. Certainly Patti Smith's group had been around for a while. Certainly Blondie had been around for a while. Yeah, that's true. But I do wonder if some of that isn't the grass is always greener phenomenon. So we're looking at it from our point of view in the UK and, and New York, certainly at that time, would have seemed impossibly exotic to yeah. kids growing up in, in your case in Warrington, in my case in Hampstead. But interesting that the the Blondie album is another example of an album that, or maybe it's the only example of an album that has both of the two things that I talked about at the beginning of the show, the new wave and the disco going mm -hmm. on simultaneously. So the big song off the record is Heart of Glass, which is clearly a disco inspired song. But there is still elements. I suppose songs like One Way or Another still got that kind of new, you know, new wave edge to it. Um, also, so in, also in America, we have Devo. Is this the first Devo album? Are we not men? We are Devo. I'm no I Devo expert. I think it expert. is, yeah. I'm not a, an expert either. I know a few of their singles and I know that they kind of evolved into a more electro pop style band. Had a couple of the singles. Always kind of liked them, but never loved them. I know that one of their early albums, maybe it was this one, was produced by... Mr. Eno. Yeah, well, obviously, the, the Eno, the drinking game favourite, he's going to come in a lot this time because he produced three albums this year of his own and then also produced the Talking Heads album from this year, which is brilliant, their second album, and Devo. Is he part of the drinking game? I, OK, so let's just lay out here. Who's part of the drinking game? Obviously, Fripp. Sylvian is part of the drinking game. Yeah, Eno. Eno is part of the drinking game, is it? What yeah. about the ham? I think the ham is, yeah, the ham. The Bowser? I just thought, you, you've got to add the Bowser. You've got to add the bush. You've got to add Talk Talk, Blue Nile. Well, in our case, you, yeah, you're, not, you're never far away from, from dropping a, a Bowser or a ham, are you? When it's we're true. talking. Yeah. yeah. In fact, we're, we're coming on to the ham later. It's a good year for the ham, isn't it? It's spectacular year. Spectacular year for the ham. Okay. So, I'm, Tim, at this point, I'm thinking this is going to have to be a two-parter. Because we've got three pages of hours to get through. <laughs> we're not even, we're just about halfway through page one and we've been talking for an hour and a half. So I'm thinking 1978, two-parter. We did a two-parter before, didn't we? Was it, it was also a 70s year, wasn't it? I think it was. Yeah, wasn't it 79? Was it 79? Yeah. Well, obviously it's this period in history where we're finding so much to talk about and so many great records to talk about. 